interesting and there's a lot to it, but I want to get to God's Word and talk about what Paul says on these issues that we're talking about uh, this morning. And so that's that's my endeavor uh, before you is to, is to move relatively quickly through some of these, uh, these first points, some things that could require or could uh, be worthy of much longer explanation. They could be worthy of uh, weeks of study on each of these topics. We won't do that at this time, but I want to uh, talk about those areas and then move on to what God has from us, uh, for us in His Word. Um, if you had to think about what, what are some of the most practical and personal and uh, basic but super important questions of the Christian life, maybe two of them, what, what do you think those questions would be? Would it be, would it be questions of doctrine? Would it be questions of justification? What, what kind of questions would it be? Well, I, I don't know what those questions would be for you. And, and, um, but for me, two, uh, two questions that are very important that I really want us to think about this morning are, first of all, how can I know I'm a Christian? That's a pretty basic Christian life kind of question. How can I know I'm a Christian? And a second question is like it. How can I grow as a Christian? And those, those questions aren't just big questions for me, and they're not just big questions for people in our age or whatever. Those are massive questions that the Reformers dealt with themselves. They wrestled with this in their own, uh, in their own hearts, in their own lives. They wrestled with this in their own teaching. And I think that really all Christians throughout all times have wrestled with those same kinds of things. We see these topics come up a lot in the writing of the New Testament. And so uh, that, that encourages me that it was kind of a topic all the way back uh, to the beginning of Christianity. How can I know I'm a Christian? And then how can I grow as a Christian? And so those are the topics we want to talk about this morning. The, the how can I grow as a Christian? That's, that's the word sanctification. That's, that's what we're going to be talking about. And then assurance is how can I know that I'm a Christian? But before we get too far into it, I want to start by defining some terms. And I think they're on your notes. You'll, you'll see a, the uh, handout in your bulletin. You'll see that there are some notes there. And right off the bat, we want to talk about uh, defining terms. And first of all, justification. We've talked about that. We preached a whole message on it. It's a, it's a word that we use quite a bit. But I want to be very clear what we're talking about when we talk about justification because it's significant for the conversation that we're having today on sanctification and assurance. By justification, I mean, and uh, theologians mean, the objective courtroom-type judgment of God concerning the sinner's standing before the law. That is, God declares the sinner to be righteous because of what Jesus did. It's God's declaration to the sinner that uh, they have been declared to be righteous before God, and that is because of what Jesus did and their faith in Jesus. So that's justification. That's kind of like entering into the Christian life. That's the, that's the very start of things, right? The word sanctification is a related concept, but it has more to do with growth in the Christian life. The idea of sanctification is it's the process of me dying to sin and living to righteousness practically in my life. It's learning how to obey God. That's what sanctification is. The process of the Christian dying to sin, living to righteousness, putting to death the deeds of the flesh that are still in our bodies. That's sanctification. You can see that's the ongoing uh, reality of the Christian life. The idea of assurance is simply the discussion of the, the question, how can I know that I'm saved? How, how do I know I'm really a Christian? It's the confidence the believer has that he is a true believer whose sins are forgiven and who will, will be received into heaven. 
That's the question of assurance. Now, you probably all knew that or most of that, but it's very important for us to define these terms and to understand how they relate to one another because if we flip them around, you can see that it causes real problems. And this has happened at various points uh, throughout church history where uh, we flip around the idea of sanctification and justification, right? So the way I've defined it, the way, uh, the way I believe it's, it's clearly found in Scripture, a sinner is justified, declared to be righteous before God because of what, uh, because of what Christ has done, right? That's the beginning. That's the entry into. And then the new Christian, already declared to be righteous before God, yet practically lives out obedience to God throughout their lives, and that's called sanctification. That's the ongoing process. If we flip that around and we talk about us becoming more like Christ over here, to such a point where I've become righteous enough, whatever your standard is or whatever the church's standard is or however you define it, I've become righteous enough to then be declared to be righteous by God. You see the problem that that would cause? I mean, just look at your own heart for a while. If, if you were supposed to make yourself clean, and once you made yourself clean enough that God could recognize your cleanness and declare you to be righteous, when would you ever get there? Just look in your own heart. When, when would you ever arrive there? And therefore, when, when would you ever have assurance that you're really a Christian? Never. Let's say in an imaginary world you, you cleaned yourself up and you imagined that God declared you to be righteous. Well, what happens? The, the fact is we're still sinners and we're going to sin again. And what happens when you sin again? Whoa. Did I lose my justification? Or maybe I just thought I had it and I don't really have it and I must climb the ladder a little bit more to get back up there. And so that's why this topic is important. And I want to be clear from the outset that a Christian is justified. He's declared to be righteous before God while he is still a sinner over here. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he tells us that God justifies the ungodly. That's the nature of justification. He justifies the ungodly, declares them to be righteous because of, their, because of what Christ has done by their faith in Him. And after God has declared to be uh, declared a person to be righteous, his life begins to change practically and become conformed to Christ. That process, the life, life change, the lifelong life change, is called sanctification. It happens after justification, necessarily. Necessarily. Even a brand new believer whose life hasn't yet begun to change can have full confidence of their standing before God as a justified sinner because of what Christ has done. Even though their life doesn't look much like it yet. They don't get confidence uh, from their sanctification. They gain confidence from Christ Himself. And so uh, those are the truths, the theological truths that are behind this. Well, I said these, these are topics that the Reformers wrestled with and we wrestle with. And um, so I want to talk about how did the Reformers believe that we can grow in the Christian life? How, how did they believe that we, in our faith, grow to be more like Christ in obedience to Him? And so there are three main ways I could have... I started off with like seven points, and I thought you guys probably wouldn't like that. So I tried to condense them down, and no, no telling how long it would take me to explain all that. But first of all, the first thing that, that, that they talked about is the fact that holiness, practical holiness in life, is a gift. It's a gift. They didn't, they didn't look at sanctification just as the goal. We're supposed to walk like... They didn't look at it just that way. There's an aspect of that. They didn't ignore that. But that wasn't the main thing. They didn't look at it just as a goal, something that we're to work towards, head towards, and all that kind of stuff, but they looked at it primarily as a gift that God gives us. Righteous living 
is primarily a gift. In fact, for Luther, the righteousness in the Christian's life was primarily a gift. It involved human effort and accomplishment, but only secondarily. The same was true for Calvin. They saw this righteousness as a gift. It's a promise from Christ himself to us. So that's not all of the story, but primarily it's a gift of God, this righteousness that we live out in the Christian life. So, so how, does, uh, how does a person grow in the Christian life? Well, primarily it's a gift from God. Second, holiness comes from union with Christ. Union with Christ. This isn't a topic that we talk about all that much, and you won't see if you go to a Christian bookstore or, uh, or look to, to buy Christian books, you won't see a lot of topics on our union with Christ. We don't tend to think in these terms, but for the Reformers, it was a big, big deal. And actually, in the book of Ephesians, we're, only, we're not going to cover the whole book today, but uh, in the book of Ephesians, about 21 times, it talks about us being in Christ or in Him. Our union with Him is key to New Testament writing, and particularly as we look here in the book of Ephesians. And for the Reformers, it was key to understanding how we grow in obedience as a Christian. Calvin talked about these, uh, there, there are two benefits or two graces, a double grace, he called it, of being united with Christ, right? The first is crucial to us, that by being united with Christ, we are in Christ now. That means that instead of having a judge in heaven, we have a father in heaven. You see the difference? And we have, I know people whose dad is a judge, but, but uh, instead of having that righteous judge who stands there and is looking at you as a defendant, instead of that, because you are united with Christ, you have a loving heavenly father who looks at you as a child of God. He looks at you as his child. That's a huge difference. That's enormous. And that happens because we are in Christ. So that's the first part that Calvin talked about. But secondly, the second grace that he talked about was that since we've been sanctified by Christ's Spirit, therefore we can cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. The fact is that our very union with Christ sanctifies us. The fact that we are in Christ, that process or that fact itself affects our lives and sanctifies us because we are in Christ. That works itself out in holiness in our lives. And so for Calvin and for Luther, these were huge things, us being in Christ. And if you think about that, think about what it means to be in Christ. That'll, that'll take you to new places in your thinking. And if, and if you will take a pen or pencil or something like that, and when you read through Ephesians, read through other books in the New Testament, underline how often it talks about you being in Christ. And think about what it means to be united with Him in that way. It's a huge, huge deal. So holiness comes from our union with Christ. And thirdly, holiness is shaped by the Scripture. And uh, one case in point when we think about this, holiness being shaped by the Scripture, it's kind of an odd way to put it, but I think it'll make sense in a moment. Luther faced a lot of, a lot of uh, challenges. He, uh, he faced three main challengers when it comes to, uh, well, generally when you look at his life, he faced a lot of challengers. But first of all was the, the, uh, his, his Catholic heritage, and he was in a wrestling match with the, uh, with the, the Pope and, and other bishops and whatnot kind of all through the course of his life from, uh, from 1517 and on, really a little bit earlier than that. And um, so he had, he had them as challengers. But even within Re- the Reformation, he had other challengers. He had, he had people who saw... Uh, they were called antinomians. They believed that the law, uh, or rather obeying God, was just unnecessary. You, you've been justified. It doesn't matter if you obey God or not. It doesn't really matter. They're anti-law. And so he faced those, and he, had, he combated those head on. 
And so he, he had to deal with the antinomians, but he also had to deal with another group that was, uh, it's called the, uh, the radical reformation. I mentioned them, mentioned them a little bit last week. And it's a, it's a, that's a scattered topic of a lot of, uh, very interesting things that came out of it. Some of them pretty solid and pretty encouraging and others of them a little bit weird, like the fact that really our holiness lived out in our lives is to be governed by personal revelation from God. If God tells you to do that thing, then you do it and it is holy. If God didn't tell you to do that, well, he didn't tell you to do that. And so it wasn't required of you. It wasn't important for you to do that. And so uh, you had you had those kind of those kind of perspectives. Those are the three main challengers uh, that, that Luther had. And so, kind of interesting because in the, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they had developed, of course the church had been around for a long time, they had developed specific recommendations that had become stronger than recommendations for how you're to live the Christian life. And it was sort of traditions that you should do this and you should do this that, that you couldn't really turn to the, the, the verse or whatever that talks about them. You couldn't build the argument primarily from Scripture, but it was the tradition that had developed in the church. And so uh, Luther, was, Luther was addressing that issue. Well, in all three of those different issues, both from the, the tradition of the church and from the antinomians, those who believed that obedience to God was really kind of irrelevant because you're already justified, and the radical reformation, uh, those who believed that really the only obedience that was required of you was what God convicted you to do. By the way, you've probably heard that kind of language talking to friends sometimes. It's, uh, you see this stuff recurring. This isn't just a 500-year-ago problem, right? This is something that we deal with now. Well, the way Luther dealt with all of those challenges was by pointing to Scripture. Each time, he would bring them back to Scripture. And so the traditions and the expectations that had developed in the Roman Catholic Church were not to define for us what was practical personal holiness. The Bible does that. And to those who taught that the believer was to be bound and guided uh, only by direct revelation from God, Luther pointed to the Bible as the final and completed and sufficient and authoritative Word of God. We are to be guided and bound only by the Bible. And when the Bible says to do it, whether you're convicted about it or not, you do it. And when the Bible says don't do it, whether you think God's telling you to do it or not, you don't do it. This is what binds us. And then to the antinomians who taught that obedience to God was unnecessary, Luther pointed to, to the commands in the Bible as still normative in our lives. For Luther, God's commands give shape and form to our holiness. What does holiness look like as a Christian? It looks like obeying God's Word. It looks like obeying the Ten Commandments. And so it gives shape to, it gives shape to the holiness in our lives. So... Uh, the Bible, the commandments in the Bible tell us what holiness looks like. And so sanctification, obedience, was connected with God's Word as the only infallible authority for the Christian. And this was true across the board in, in those various different kind of challenges that Luther was dealing with. He answered by pointing to the Word of God. And so when we think about sanctification, and again, there's a lot more that could be said about this. We're going to move on. Uh, but uh, the, the, the reformers viewed that sanctification, life change, practical life change in your life after you became a Christian is a gift from God. And they said that it develops as a result of our union with Christ. And thirdly, it was to be guided and to be shaped by the Bible. And so they pointed to Scripture. That is our norm. Secondly, how do the reformers believe that we can know we are saved? The, the idea of assurance is a very theological concept. It's a, it's a deeply theological question and quandary. We think about it and we wrestle and we wonder, am I really a Christian or is this person really a Christian? Or, or people may come and ask us those kind of things and 
it may not occur to us, but it's deeply theological. It's extremely practical, right? Your eight-year-old wants to know the answer to this. And it's also deeply theological, and the Reformers certainly dealt with it. And, and even if you think about the beginning of Luther's Christian life, right? We, we've only talked about his life just a little bit, but his, uh, his problem wasn't that he wasn't a very good monk. He was too good a monk. He took it to heart. He believed what was said. And, uh, and he, the, he, he, had, he was influenced by a particular teaching called the Via Moderna that, uh, that kind of had a high view of, of man's ability to obey God. And, and uh, they had a saying that, that God will not deny salvation to someone who does what is within them. Right? Just follow your heart. Right? I saw that in a movie once. And, uh, it's, and, and again, the, uh, so Luther tried that. Luther, I mean, he was a, he was a great monk. He was, he, and so he followed that. And he looked, and he looked to see what was within him, what, you know, to follow the grace that was within him. And he found darkness. And he thought, well, I'm not looking hard enough. And so he looked harder, and he looked deeper, and he found more darkness. And the harder and deeper he looked, the more darkness he found until he found despair. So when he looked within him, he wasn't encouraged. He despaired. And so certainly the Reformers didn't look within themselves to find assurance. They didn't, they didn't look for anything within here to give them assurance. They knew better than that. And Luther himself certainly personally knew better than that. So first of all, they didn't, they didn't look within. And second of all, they, they, uh, they looked to the completed work of Christ. Rather than looking within, rather than thinking about and, and being introspective and, and focusing right here and looking deep down and trying to find that good that's within that you can fan into flame, rather than doing that, they looked to the completed work of Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the Reformers believed that. You need assurance? It's connected with faith. It's connected with faith. Faith is, is assurance. In other words... Do you look to the completed work of Christ as your only hope for salvation? And do you trust yourself to Him for that? If so, there's your assurance. He doesn't fail. And so your assurance is found in Him. Your assurance is found by looking to Him. As one writer put it, when the Christian looks at himself, he can only have grounds for anxiety, indeed despair, but because he is called into fellowship with Christ, he can think of himself insofar as assurance of salvation is concerned in no other way than as a member of Christ, thus making all the blessings of Christ his own. We don't look inward. We look to the completed work of Christ. The Reformer showed us that again and again. Imagine the joy that they found. Imagine the joy that Luther found when he had spent years delving deep to find that spark of life that he could fan into flame and finding none. Imagine his joy when he looked up instead and saw the completed work of Christ, saw that Jesus had always perfectly obeyed the Father where he had not, and that could be credited to him. When he saw that Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for his sin, and that could be accredited to him. When he saw that Jesus was sinless, always obedient, and that could be his in Christ. Imagine the joy. Imagine that joy. And, and that's where Luther was. So they, they looked to the completed work of Christ. They looked without themselves. They looked to without. They looked to the completed work of Christ. And then thirdly, a believer can know by looking to his union with Christ. 
Again, we come to the union with Christ. Jesus said in John 6, 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We are united with Christ. And the fact that we have been united with him means that the way the Father looks at the Son includes us. It includes us. And so how does he look at you? He sees righteousness. He sees a righteous person. He sees someone who has right standing before him because you are in Christ. For Calvin and Luther both, the fact that we are in Christ, united with him, means that we can look to him for our spiritual identity. We don't find our identity in how well you do the spiritual disciplines or in how how well you know the Bible or how many times you've read it or when was the last time you committed this particular sin. We don't look for our spiritual identity here at all. We look to Christ because we are in him and we find our spiritual identity in Christ. What a rich source of assurance, Jesus himself. That's assurance. That's assurance. So, so much for what the reformers said on these topics, and we could, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I want to get to our passage, which is God's design uh, on these topics. And so we're looking to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 16 for us. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This is page 977 if you're using a pew Bible. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so here you have a picture from God's Word about these exact topics, about the topics of sanctification and even assurance. So first of all, as you work your way through that passage, the very first thing you can see is that uh, God has given word ministers. I call them word ministers, people who proclaim the Word. And here you have, you have uh, apostles and prophets. They're the ones who gave the Word God used them as instruments to give the Word of God, the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, those who share the Word with people who don't yet know it, who preach the Word, and the pastors and teachers who are the ones who teach the Word in the church. It's all centered around the ministry of the Word. That's the source. That's where this comes from. And so God gave Word ministers, and He did so for a purpose. Look at that. God gave those Word ministers, verse 12, to equip the saints to equip the saints. And so the, the equipping ministry of the Word of God is how God roots the, the ministry of the local church. How does ministry happen? We've been talking about it in Sunday school. How does ministry happen? Well, it's rooted in the local church. And one of the reasons is because He has given pastors and teachers to teach the Word of God in the local church context to equip the ministers, that is, to equip the saints. 
to equip the members of the congregation to themselves become ministers of the word to one another. And so the, the ministry of the word of God equips members so that they, those members, can then become the actual ministers, those who minister to folks around them. And so that's the first point there. And, uh, and, and even the second point, they are equipped to become ministers. Look at, uh, as 12 continues, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. And so you're ministers. I'm not the only minister. Chris and Woody and I are not the only ministers. You guys are ministers. You've been given ministry. You're to be equipped by the teaching of the Word, and that's part of what we're doing here, and that's what we do in Sunday school and, and in other capacities, to, to teach, to equip the saints who then themselves become the ministers within the body. And so there are various philosophies, and, and some of these are in, intentional. Some of them are maybe connected with certain denominations or, or whatever. Some of them just happen accidentally. But there, there are certainly circles where it seems like, the, it's beyond seem like, it's pretty obvious. The expectation is when there's a ministry to be done, when there's something to be done, the pastor should do it. He's, he's the one who's been equipped. He's the one who knows the Bible the best, knows how to minister the best or whatever, and he gets paid to do it. So he should be the one to do the ministry. And so it ends up being where, where you guys are kind of the, the, you know, the shareholders or something paying the pastor to do this. And, and you see this in various uh, congregations, various denominations around the country and I assume around the world. But the idea is where you have the pastor who's really the one who's kind of on call to do all the stuff, to do all the ministry, because he's the one who ministers. We, we, we pay him to minister. We support him in the ministry, and we are encouraged by his ministry, but he's the one that should do the ministry. And, and Paul flips that around and says the, the, the pastors and teachers are the ones who are teaching the Word of God, training the members, equipping the members so that they themselves can be well-equipped to do ministry. The bulk of the ministry, the vast bulk of the ministry should be done by the members of the congregation as equipped and as trained from the, uh, from the pastors and teachers. And so for a lot of people, that's a mind shift. That's a change because what we want to do is we want to, we want to have someone else do it. And, and, you know, that guy went to Bible college. That guy went to seminary. That guy has done counseling before. That guy has dealt with this before, and he's used to being in front of people. He reads his Bible a lot. He's had the training, so let him do it. And that's not what Paul says. Paul says all that stuff is true of him so he can teach the rest to themselves be equipped to, to do the work of ministry. And look what the result of that ministry is as we, we continue on in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Members build up the body of Christ. And he's going to continue on and we'll read it about. He spells out in a little more detail what all is involved there. But it is the body, it is the members within the body, it is the saints who do the work and the result of that work is the body being built up. So you're equipped to do the ministry. When you do the ministry, the body is strengthened and the body is built up. That's a little bit of a paradigm shift sometimes. As we've been talking about in our Sunday school class, we have all been called as Christians to be ambassadors. We have all been called to be ministers to other people around us. Ministers of reconciliation, imploring people to trust Christ, imploring our Christian brothers and sisters to follow after Christ more closely in this area. That's our ministry, and that is your ministry. That's not just the pastoral ministry. And so you see that that's kind of a, a broad, uh, over, uh, overarching statement there when he says it's for the building up of the body, and then he goes into more detail. Until we all attain to the unity of 
of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How long do we do this? How long do you minister? What's the goal? What's the target for your ministry? Well, we're trying to see the whole body built up. We're trying to see a unity in the faith so that we all understand the faith. This is faith as in the content of what you believe. The content of Christianity is, is what is uh, at focus here. And try, we're trying to help people understand the content of what is Christian doctrine. What is true salvation? We're trying to help people understand that. And, and that needs to be a ministry that happens broadly. Calling people to obedience to that same truth. That's not just our task. That's all of our task is to do that. And so we're, we're, we're investing until we all attain to the unity of the faith of, of the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowing Him. Knowing what is true about Him and what is not true about Him. This, this calls us to a higher standard. This isn't just us going through a ritual or some weekly practice or, or something like that. It's actually calling us to a, a new and fuller understanding of what the gospel really is, of what the truth of Scripture really is. It involves us learning. It involves us growing and growing in obedience to those things. That's what we do when we minister to one another. We, 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 we invest in that until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're going to get back to this in a little bit. Growing up into Him so that you see us becoming practically more and more uh, obviously Christians. More and more obviously our local representation of the body of Christ. That happens by us ministering to one another. By you ministering to one another. That's how that happens. So that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There is heresy in the world. And it's appealing. And it's put into words that, sounds very familiar, words that sound very familiar, that are very palatable. A lot of people are deceived. A lot of people are deceived. They don't understand the word. They don't understand the truth of Scripture. They don't understand the truth of the gospel, and they are deceived in various ways. There are people who make a lot of money deceiving us in those various ways. And so part of our maturing, part of our being built up, is that we move beyond that immaturity where we don't really know. We're, we're kind of trusting of any source that says it's from a Christian website or whatever. We move beyond that to really understanding what is the gospel, what is the truth of the Son of God. What is the faith? So we are protected against, we are bolstered against that, uh, that, that deceitful influence. In verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, probably the truth here is the truth of Scripture, the truth of what is true about the gospel, what is true about God, as opposed to, verse 14, those deceitful schemes, those things that were sold to you to, to try and make you believe these things that are false. Rather, speaking the truth... In love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. We grow up. We learn what is true. We grow in that unity of the faith. We grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. And that matures us as a congregation so that we are less susceptible to this author who's a terrible influence or, or that radio speaker who's a terrible influence or this person who would make you believe this thing that's just almost true. 
so that we defend ourselves, we protect ourselves, we are built up as a congregation and defended against that. Into Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's you, you're the joints. <laughs> joints and sin, that's you. The, 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 the members, the parts of the body, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God is working. Christ is working in the church. And He has given pastors and teachers, teach the Word of God to equip you to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body. And when all of that is functioning, and we, when each member of that is functioning the way they should, the result is a strong and healthy and vibrant body that is not susceptible to deception. It's not susceptible to the temptations of the world, but is a strong and growing and thriving body. And that only happens when each part is functioning as it should. If your wee little kneecap gets out of whack, some of you have had that happen. You know, it's just a tiny little thing. You don't really need it. It's, you know, it's not very big. But just try and go for a run or, or walk or sleep at night if that thing's out of whack. And that, that is what is true about each of us. Some of you are, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm the kneecap you know, or pinky or whatever. I, I don't know. You're important. And when you're functioning properly, hey, the leg functions properly. This thing's not that important. I never think about it until I whack it on something, right? But if it doesn't function right, then I'll think about it. And when each member is functioning as it ought to function, the result is a greater health and vibrancy and strength and life to the local congregation. This is how Christ has designed his body to function. That's our passage. That's our passage. And so how does this come down to the questions that we asked in the beginning? We asked, how can I grow as a Christian? How can I be sanctified as a Christian? Well, from looking at this passage right here, I can think of several things. We are sanctified by being taught the Word of God at church, which, which equips us for ministry and moves us beyond vulnerable immaturity and into depth and maturity. So we are sanctified by being taught God's Word here. It's, we, we live in a very interesting time where, I mean, I like, you know, a lot of preachers better than I like my own preaching. It's rare for me to listen to my own sermon. I'll dial up, you know, someone else and, and listen to them, people I trust and whatever. And, and that's, that's great and that's encouraging, but I don't know them. I don't know what their life is like. I don't know, uh, I, I don't know about their finances. I don't know about their home life. I don't know what their kids are doing. I don't know if they're, if they're squidgy in these other areas. I just don't know that. I, I know Woody, and I trust Woody. I, I know Chris, and I trust Chris. And so we see each other. You see us, and you can tell about our lives. And so you have a greater degree of trust because you can look at us. We're not, you know, I, I, I would rather listen to these other people <laughs> than myself. But... That's not the way God has done it. He has put pastors and teachers right here to minister right here. And so, first of all, we are sanctified by being taught the Word of God at church. That equips us. Second of all, we are sanctified by learning to minister to others and then going and doing so. That sanctifies us. When you enter into someone else's life to minister to them, that's a sanctifying process on us right there. Thirdly, we are sanctified through the ministry of fellow members of the church as they themselves are equipped and then they minister to us. So we're in a congregation together and when every, every uh, joint and sinew, of every, everything, your kneecap, every kneecap is functioning as it should, the result is I grow in my walk with Christ because you have ministered to me. 
That's right here in this passage. Fourthly, we are sanctified by the body when its parts are working properly, when they build itself up in love. We get to love one another and be in a relationship that's committed to one another, committed to seeing good in the lives of one another. And we are sanctified by that process. And fifthly, we are sanctified by Christ himself who gave us this church and these other Christians in our church to minister to us. And he works through them and through this church to minister in us, to us, to see us be sanctified. Christ uses this congregation to sanctify me and to sanctify you. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. And so... Where do we look for our sanctification? Where do we see it? Right here. From the teaching of the Word to the ministry of the people around us to the love that's in the local church that is not on the podcast, there is sanctification. We also ask the question, how can I know I'm a Christian? Of course, that was a a big one that the Reformers wrestled with. A lot of people wrestle with that question. Uh, You've probably wrestled with it at some point or another or had someone come to you wrestling with, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Well, does Ephesians 4 address that? I think it does. I think, first of all, we grow in our assurance when we are properly taught and come properly to understand the Bible and particularly the gospel. The more clearly we understand the gospel the more assurance that we have who put our faith in Christ. The more assurance we have who look to the gospel. The better we understand it, the more assured we are. First of all. Second of all, we grow in assurance as mature Christians around us, pour into our lives the truths of what we have in Christ, including the great assurance that there is in simple faith, really believing. I just believe what Christ did. I rely on Him. I throw myself on him. And so as we get to minister to one another, as, as those who are not wrestling with assurance issues, get to minister to people who are wrestling with assurance issues and point them to the gospel, point them to Christ, those people who are wrestling with assurance issues are strengthened. And they come to see and understand better uh, exactly the truth of the gospel, that there is assurance to be found in Christ, not by looking in here. Thirdly, we grow in assurance as we look to our union with Christ so that His accomplished work is where we get our identity. Part of, ma- the, of maturing in the faith is realizing in our lives just what we have because we are in Christ and He is in us. Growing up into maturity, growing up into the fullness, growing up into Christ. Realizing it, living out, understanding what it means that we are in Christ. There is incredible assurance there because I don't get my identity from how I'm doing in the Christian life. I don't get my spiritual identity from who I am deep down. I get my identity from Jesus because I am united with Him. And so I think there's a lot of assurance. I think there's great comfort to be found here. I think there's great comfort to be found in the preaching of the gospel and being here and ministered to by each other as we are encouraged, as, as we have people pour into our lives and point us back to Christ, point us back to our union with Christ, that we are in Him. Let's grow up into Him. So the equipped saints doing the work of ministry builds up the body of Christ into unity and maturity. Rather than being immature and deceived and susceptible and vulnerable, we are to speak gospel truth to one another. And by these means, the body functions properly and thus builds itself up in love. So how are we sanctified and how are we assured? Right here. As we invest in one another, as we 
as we study the Bible together, we have the Bible taught to us by our pastors and teachers, as we are equipped to do ministry, and as we actively minister in the lives of one another, because we are ambassadors, we've been called to live beyond ourselves. I'm not the center of my world. He is, and so I'm going to do what he says. When we, when we all function that way, when all the kneecaps are functioning that way, there is health and strength and vitality and protection and growth within the body. And we see maturity, and we see people being sanctified, and we see people having their, insur- their assurance increased because they're appointed to Christ. And so I think there's, there's great uh, truth to be found here. I think there's great comfort to be found here. If you're wrestling with assurance, if you're wrestling with are you really a Christian, take your eyes off of here, that drove Luther nuts, or almost, and look to Christ. Look to the completed work of Christ. Look to Him. He, he already accomplished it. He obeyed the Father. He paid the penalty for you. And you're seated there with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians started that way. Seated with Him in the heavenly places already. What encouragement there is by looking to Christ. And so let me encourage you to do that. If you're, if you're lacking assurance, look to Christ. Throw yourself upon Him. He is, he's the only way for uh, you to be reconciled with Almighty God. Cast yourself on Him. Trust in Him. And that faith itself is assurance. There's encouragement right here. There's sanctification right here. So I praise the Lord that I get to be with you all. It's an an encouragement every time I get to be up here because not too long ago I was an 18-year-old kid sitting up here, didn't know anything, and now now I get to be with you and minister with you. And that's encouraging to me. And I, I want you to catch that encouragement. So I, I, hope this is, uh, I hope this is not just a, a talk about what some reformers thought all those years ago, but what the Bible says about how we can encourage one another in the faith. And so let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, to you encouraged because of what Christ has accomplished. I don't measure up to what Christ has accomplished. So I look to Christ who has accomplished it. I look to Him. I cast myself on Him. I believe what He has done for me. I trust Him for what He has done for me. I throw myself. I have no other hope but Jesus Himself. And He is a perfect Savior. He's the one who accomplishes it. And so I thank You. I thank You for that encouragement. And I pray that uh, those who maybe came in with discouragement, questions on this topic, questions about their own salvation, I pray that you would draw them to look to Christ, that they would understand what he has done on the cross, that they would throw themselves again upon his mercy and they would find confidence in Christ and not in themselves. There is none to be found there. And there is every confidence to be found in Christ. So, Father, I thank you for that. I take great, great comfort. What a, what a perfect wellspring of assurance and encouragement there is in that. Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us truth. I thank you for this congregation that, that ministers in my life and with whom I get to minister. I love them, and I love you for giving me this opportunity. Father, we trust you and we look to you, and I do pray that you would work this way in us, that we would be this kind of congregation where every joint and every kneecap functions properly, and we would see a uh, growth in our relationships with one another, in our maturity in Christ, our walk, our assurance, our encouragement in Christ that would reflect you and reflect your work in our body. I pray that you would do this, Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God bless you all. Amen.